This is a unique podcast exploring the criminal justice system and those involved and affected. We'll educate and expose the public as well as potential jurors to what takes place behind the scenes of those who are facing the system. Your host owns a litigation support firm called Justice Technology Professionals, and he works on criminal and civil cases offering support to defendants and counsel. What you're about to hear is an open dialogue opening the minds to the public to what takes place in reality as opposed to what you think takes place ladies and gentlemen welcome to the justice tech pros podcast here's your host dominic crea hello listeners hope everybody's doing well today's episode uh, shouldn't be too long I'm just going to go into a hot topic of late, people talking about how do you know if somebody's an informant as far as researching them and pulling up case information. So I wanted to give uh, some tips on that and how the process is normally done and how um, when you're preparing for a case, you're trying to figure out who the different confidential sources are, confidential informants, so you could obviously prepare and do your own investigation work. So at the beginning of any case, you really don't know who it is because who may be if there is any uh, confidential informants on the case. Confidential sources work a little differently. Confidential source will feed information. But with a confidential source, they really, uh, if they're just going to stay a a source, they don't get involved too much in the actual charges and the actual trial itself because, as we all know, you have a right to face your accuser. So if somebody's going to say, well, yeah, this person did A, B, and C, you have a right as the defense to call them. They they can't just say, oh, some confidential source said that if you go to trial. It doesn't work that way. They have to eventually come out if they're making allegations against you. Um, And they're just feeding them information here and there, but they're not, usually the sources aren't directly in the mix where... um, they could, their information is responsible for the indictment. Normally, it's just to almost give the, give the authorities information on what's going on and have them focus their investigation on that area. So if they're hearing from this source, oh, this person's dealing drugs, then the investigators will focus on that person and take their investigation from there, and then that's when they normally look to recruit actual confidential informants who will then work with whoever the target is and um, try to either record them or uh, give information to the feds or to the state on what this person's doing as they prepare to go to trial and as they prepare to indict them. I should say indict them first, then go to trial. And then you go down the whole road of preparing the confidential informant and all that. But I'm not going to go into that. What I want to do is I want to just explain um, a lot of people think Oh, well, if it's a sealed dom- document, that means the person's an informant. That's not true at all. Um, there's been many cases, you can look them up, where things are sealed by the defense. If the uh, defendant is sick, they may have uh, health issues they don't want to talk about. They even seal a lot of things for mental um, evaluations. If there's a hearing that does a mental evaluation to see if somebody's competent to stand trial, they could seal that as well because it's personal information. And there could always be a motion to unlift the ceiling. I'll give you an example. There was a few ceilings um, on a federal case I was involved with. There was um, ceilings of the sentencing for the informants. 
and Jerry Capisci from Gangland News actually filed um, a motion to unseal those documents for free, you know under freedom of the press and all that. He filed a motion. So people can file a motion to unseal documents, and you'll see all that in PACER, and then it's up to the judge if they grant the unsealing or not. So some things can be filed, uh, unsealed. It's all at the uh, judge's discretion. A lot of times they'll weigh it and see if uh, uh, the importance of it being public information outweighs, let's say, the informant's safety or whatever it may be. But it's an individual, an individual decision on the judge's level. Now, when you, when you when when you have an informant, people will be like, "Oh, they're not in Pacer. They're not in anything." That's not true. If an informant gets caught breaking the law, so let's say they got caught. Um, doing something that warranted a federal charge, uh, such as drugs or uh, armed robbery, whatever it may be, but on the federal level. It have to, I'm talking about the federal level and PACER for this example. Uh, state level works differently, but on the federal level for PACER, um, this is what I'm going to really be discussing. So what you do is obviously you'll go in, you'll pull up the person. Now, I pulled up an example. This is PACER. This is the uh, New York Southern District of Pacer. Now, uh, this person was an informant, so a well-known informant um, that I've done some episodes on. So th this individual, what a lot of people think is, oh, oh if they're informant, they wipe out their, all their records from the system. You know, anything they ever done so they could work confidentially. That's not accurate. When, the, when somebody commits a crime on the federal level, It'll automatically, this is the docket sheet. If you go to PACER, you can run the docket sheet. So it'll automatically um, generate, you know, the docket sheet. It'd be entered into the system as a complaint. So I'm just going to show you the example. What happens is the complaint hits the system. So this is this, uh, this complaint. The complaint hits the system, and it gives you all the information about the complaint. This had to do with uh, his drug dealing. He got caught dealing drugs. Uh, while incarcerated as a federal prisoner at Putnam County. Now, what's important to remember about this, he was already an informant. He was already working with the government, and it hit the system, okay? It's in the, uh, it's in PACER, okay? So people think, oh, well, it's not even going to show up in PACER if he's an informant. That's not accurate. The, the charges will still be brought. It'll hit the system, and you could still have the ability to go through the complaint and see what took place. Now, this is where it really relies on the defense team and the investigation to start putting the pieces of the puzzle together. That's when you try to figure out, um, you, you try to just figure out and understand if this person may be an informant, may not. So you have to do a lot of research and you have to follow the case. And I want to show you an example. So now here's the complaint. They go through the whole thing. They get arraigned, the charges, everything's explained out. Uh, they're talking about uh, whatever this uh, informant had did had done, and it was all around heroin and stuff. He was offering heroin and and uh, suboxone, I guess. Yeah, all, all kinds of drug stuff. So now what happens is, okay, you see that first document, you see the complaint. Now as you start going through, you'll see different entries within. This is it basically working its way through the system. Now here you'll see a request for their third appearance, you have an affirmation of Scott Hartman in support by USAS to Frank Pesqua Jr. Now, Frank Hartman was actually one of the federal uh, prosecutors involved with handling uh, Frank Pesqua on an indictment 
later on that he that he was an informant for. So you'll you'll notice that um, he shows up at the hearing. So just to lay it out, you'll notice all the different events that take place. You have um, all different entries, all, all the different process that's going through. And, and what happens normally is the judge will then hear the sides, they'll talk about the case, and at that point, when you start seeing the prosecution, prosecution getting involved, going to appearances, they'll start to delay the case, they'll start to um, talk to the judge, and they'll start to weigh if the new charges outweigh the use of the informant. So in other words, if the charges are so severe they feel it doesn't justify him being a, an informant, they'll go through with the case. Uh, if not, then uh, that's when they become an informant and things work a little differently and then they decide how they're going to use them, if they're going to have them wear a wire or tape phone calls, whatever it may be. But this is all played out throughout um, different documentation and you could get that a lot of it's on PACER when you're just trying to find out the origin or the genesis of the case. So if an informant gets picked up and you're trying to just follow the case or somebody who may think is an informant, you're trying to follow the case, you really have to go through each uh, line item. And what's important with that, you'll notice they have what's called the minute entries on these dockets. What a lot of people don't do, they'll just read this and they'll make the conclusions from this. This is simply one step. In addition, you have to start requesting the minutes, and people think you could do that on PACER. That's not how it works. To request the minutes, you have to find out who the transcriber was for the case and for the day. There's different transcribers who show up at different days. So you have to find out who that transcriber is, and then you have to order the minutes, and you can read in the minutes. And throughout the minutes, a lot of the times, that's when you start to be able to put the pieces of the puzzle together by what they're talking about, what they're referencing within the courtroom how they're discussing the case, how they're discussing the charges. Again, it's all putting pieces of the puzzle together to see what your conclusion is because a lot of times you don't know who the informants are until right before trial, and then they have to divulge anybody they're calling to testify. So um, that's normally when, you, as you find out, but in the discovery, you, you don't know initially who it is, and I'll give you an example of that. I want to just show you what it looks like when it's in the, um, when you get a piece of paper in the discovery, uh, that's some, now I, I redacted a lot of information, but this is a um, CI's, one of the CI's initial documents when they first start talking to the FBI about, about information, okay, and working with them and whatnot. You'll notice it's all documented in the discovery. They have the uh, information, they tell you the dates, who was present. See, um, on such and such date, they uh, redacted the name to protect the identity, to give the date of birth, participated in an interview at Rikers Island Jail. Now remember, this is the state level, this was at the state level, and this is now the feds went in to talk to this individual. All that has to be documented on the uh, discovery. Now, defendants and whatnot, they'll be able to put it together who they're talking to because you know who was involved, who was around you. Uh, so you're able to kind of put those pieces of the puzzle together. But they don't really give you the names. They'll use abbrevi abbreviations. So you have, to, you have to use your investigation skills. You have to put certain things together. You got to talk to different defendants. As I said, it's a process. It's not like one document and boom, that's it. Okay, this guy's an informant. And that's the problem that too many people do. And that's a dangerous problem. To me, one of the things almost worse as an informant is somebody who's 
claiming someone's an informant who's not. Uh, and that's just the way it's, it's always been. That's the way I feel. And obviously, uh, as different defendants are going through the discovery and they see this type of information and they're trying to prepare for the case, they're trying to find out who, who may be the informant so they could then uh, prepare to cross-examine them, uh, prepare to impeach their testimony, thing, things of that, na uh, of that nature. So it's all um, a fact-finding at the beginning. When you're going through it, it's all a fact-finding. Um, a lot of people like to refer to, oh, and I just want to show on the docket, You'll see the cases, you know, on the docket, but they say, oh, if he's an informant, it's not in the docket. It's not true. All the entries will initially make the docket with the initial complaint, and then you have to see how it all, how it all uh, pans out. Then you got to see what develops, what happens, how much time the person got. It, it's um, a lot of people make that mistake of hearing one thing or seeing one thing and automatically jump into the conclusion, oh, this guy's an informant. You really got to do your due diligence before you label somebody that. And they also, I've heard people say, well, if the feds take the case over, they just make it disappear. No, as we've seen right here, it's still going to hit the docket. The case information is going to hit the docket. The notes that the FBI uh, produced during an interview to, this is when they're trying to really determine if this person's credible, if this person is an informant. My personal opinion, they don't do a very good job on that because I've seen too many informants BS left and right and just make up fairy tales. But anyway... This is the routine they go through. They'll have interviews. They'll see what they want to give in exchange for what. It's all part of the process in becoming a full-blown full blown informant. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I just wanted to talk about the sealed documents. When you have... How do I do that? Hold on a second. Wrong document. Give me one second. Here we go. When you have a sealed document, It'll also show up in PACER, but it will show up as a sealed document placed in vault. They use that term a lot of the times. Again, does that mean that person's an informant because there's a sealed document? No, it does not. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, it could be health reasons, could be numerous reasons uh, that maybe the defense wants a document sealed or the prosecution wants a document sealed. Um, so you have to find that out too, who requested for it to be sealed and, and things of that nature. So that, that's not always a telltale, but I just want to show that it does show up in the system as being sealed. These aren't just things that disappear and reappear. I mean, I, we all know that the government works a certain way, and trust me, I'm the first one. This is unfortunately a lot of corruption and things like that. But information like this has to be documented because the judge has to be aware of the chain of events. The judge has to be on board with with basically deciding, okay, this guy's going to be an informant and the information he's going to give outweighs the crime that he committed. Um, there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of things you have to go through. You can't just come out of the gate and say, so-and-so's an informant because they had a sealed document or so-and-so's an informant because the feds picked up the case. Well, if the feds picked up a case, it would be entered in PACER, it would be represented. They don't wipe out informants' charges when they're charged, they get arrested, they get picked up, and, and a complaint's made, as is seen here. And you could see this on a lot of informants. They're, they're in PACER. You could look up their cases. A lot of the items will be sealed. A lot of the items will be redacted. But they are there. The complaints are there. A lot of information is there to really track what took place, what was the chain of events that took place. And, and that's, that's the key. Obviously, the government isn't going to make it that clear 
uh, well, this one's an informant. They have to protect them. So they do their best, but at the same time, they have to protect them. They also have to follow a certain process. And um, I, I've seen that a lot where, where people say, well, the feds picks up, picked up the case. Okay, where's the evidence of that? Where's the complaint? Where's the entry? Where's the initial signed case number? And then where are the follow-up entries that show that the case, that the feds decide to drop the case? Now, here's the difference. I don't know if they're confusing terms where they're saying the feds picked up the case. The federal government could look into cases for a while without superseding. In other words, they'll sit back, they'll monitor what the state is doing. They'll do their own investigation and see if there's anything that's on the federal level where they could swoop in and take over the case. And if they supersede, they'll take over the whole case. Sometimes they'll just indict them on separate charges uh, once they're brought onto their radar and the person will have two cases going. They'll have a state case and a Fed case. Um, so it's not always when the Feds come in that they supersede and just take it over and there's no more Fed case. You could have two cases going uh, simultaneously. It, it, it's um, a matter of the Feds deciding if they want to supersede and take over the entire indictment. And what will happen a lot of times is that the different departments will converge when a complaint is made or they're aware of somebody and they'll kind of work together with one another as the investigation's going on, as the case is getting ready for trial, deciding, all right, are we going to step in and take this over or is this really nothing we could um, charge on a federal level? It has to stay on a, on a state level. But if they do decide to take it over, it has to be documented. There has to be some kind of documentation that shows the indictment number, shows the complaint, shows all that information. So I, I wanted to just explain, there's no clear-cut document where you could just look at it, unless it has the person's name on it, obviously, and, and they, they testified already. But the, at the initial inception, when you're trying to figure out who an informant is, there's no document that's going to say that. That's part of the defense team to really investigate, put the pieces of the puzzle together and decide who may be the informant. And as you get closer to trial, you, you'll, you'll understand, obviously, uh, when it's time to face your accusers, you, you'll know who it was. So there's a lot of moving parts to this. Now, it's um, a, a lot of people make the mistake. I heard a lot of people online having different debates, and they would say, they would say, well, I spoke to a, a federal attorney, and I told them, what does it mean if, so, if the feds take over a case, but they don't do anything about it from the state, and it just disappears? Now, if you explain something like that, <laughs> obviously any attorney is going to be like, well, that sounds, that sounds fishy. I would say the guy's an informant. It's not as cut and dry in that. You have, to, you have to explain that a little better. What proof do you have that the case was taken over on the Fed level? You have to show the entry. Where's the entry? What, what was the basis of it being dismissed? It'll just be an open entry, kind of as I showed on the... Um, let me pull that file back up. One second. Uh, this is where I was referencing. You'll follow the chain of events, and then if you notice, it just kind of dies out here. It, it, it just kind of ends there. There's nothing further. You don't know what happened, what transpired. That's another telltale sign that something's off. You don't see any kind of resolution. So that lets you know that there was a lot of negotiations going on, at least from an investigation standpoint. It gives you a better idea of, well, where did this end? What happened? What was, what was the resolution? When it just kind of ends midstream like that, 
that's where things are kind of worked out where the person either agrees to be an informant and they go from there they decide to work with that person and they go from there so you have to take all of these different clues all of these uh, different information uh, documents and put them all together and then make your decision now with that said is that a hundred percent foolproof uh, no nothing's a hundred percent foolproof you may have uh, a confidential source in the sense that they're just giving information and, and and you don't know if they're giving information I mean think about it do you know if your best friend or something's giving information can you guarantee that a hundred percent if I if you trust somebody yeah you want to guarantee that a hundred percent but in reality nobody knows you you can only be accountable for what you do you can't be a hundred percent certain uh, on others that's just a common sense thing so everybody has to make uh, their own determination on their comfort level with certain things and for me, I'm pretty thorough. I go through things in addition to what I do, let's say, electronically. Uh, there's also what we call hitting the streets. You know, you start talking to people. You talk to different people in different areas. You find out. You, you do a little investigation with boots on the ground. You, you find out uh, what cases they were involved with, who they were around. Uh, did people around them go away? Uh, did they ever get picked up? And... Uh, and get a slap on the wrist, or were they ever, ever involved in something, and everybody got arrested but them? Those are all things. That's kind of like the uh, when you when you're when you're trying to figure out things through dialogue, and you're t talking to people, and you're trying to narrow things down that way. So it's really a culmination. You have to take all that information and then decide where you stand. Um, so I just wanted to give that little insight about. Uh, how to really identify if somebody has decided to cooperate. It's not as cut and dry as many on here like to make it. Um, it's not a matter of just saying, oh, the feds took it over, but there's no proof of that. There's no entry of that. There's no docket of that. There's no representation of that. Um, those, those documents would have to be analyzed to make that conclusion. And what's important that I haven't seen anybody do when they're talking about different cases and uh, as we know, they've been talking about certain content creator and trying to say he's an informant. But I noticed nobody posted any minutes from any of the hearings. You got to post the minutes from the hearings because in the minutes, you're going to be able to read who was present at court. Now, if there's court sessions and there's not one federal agent present, not a federal prosecutor present, uh, that's a telltale sign that they may not be working with the feds because there's nobody there just to see what's going on, whereas they could then report back to their superiors and inform them, okay, this is going on with our confidential informant, this is going on with our confidential source. So it's very important. You pull those minutes, you see who was present at the different hearings, you see what the judge said, you see what the defense said. As you put all that together, yes, you could figure it out. Uh, on the cases I was involved in, we were able to figure out before uh, it was divulged every every informant pretty much involved, and it was all based on looking at the discovery, looking at the docket entries, looking at who was present during the minutes. But all of these things have to be done. It can't just be one one piece of paper. One piece of paper can make anybody look like an informant if you interpret it a certain way. Now, again, my style, I'm not here to say... I'm not here to convince anybody. I don't really care what anybody thinks. I'm comfortable in my gauge. Um, I'm comfortable in uh, with my skill set, with my ability to get information on different levels and my ability to do research. I'm very confident that I know how to navigate as far as YouTube goes, who's an informant, who's not an informant. So I'm very confident that, again, 
couldn't care what others conclude. It's irrelevant to me. Um, I go by me, I go by what I feel, and I go by proof. I don't go by insinuations. I don't go by assumptions. I don't go by, well, it could be, could not be. Now, other people may have different meters, different gauges, and that's fine. We're all different. Before I accuse somebody, before I label somebody, I need to be 100% certain in my head uh, that what I'm labeling them is accurate. And if I'm not, then I, I deal with it accordingly. Um, so that's all I have to say, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you enjoyed this quick episode. I may do little episodes like these flash episodes where I could give little tips about researching and things like that. I got to think about it, but I believe it's uh, productive. Till next time. You've been listening to the Justice Tech Pros podcast with Dominic Crea, one of the most unique podcasts on the internet, discussing the obstacles the defense team faces when trying a case, what goes on behind the scenes during pretrial and motion phase, holding defense attorneys accountable, making sure they're fighting for their clients, the difference between textbook law and how things truly play out in a courtroom, and everything in between. And everything in between. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show and we'll be back soon until then find us on twitter facebook and instagram at justice tech pros to email the show with questions and comments it's podcast at justice tech pros.com till next time this is justice tech pros podcast and dominic crea signing off